Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Codex of Athan. I am your host and author, Elijah Black. In today's episode, we will be covering the magic of Athan. During this podcast, we'll be speaking about the world of Athan as if it was real. We have a lot to cover today, so let's get ready. We'll be covering the six brands of magic that all types of magic fall under. Examples of those brands, the common usage, practical usage, and drawback of each brand. We'll also be covering the four pillars of all magic and the rules of how to use magic. We'll be talking about each pillar and how some magic examples don't use some of the pillars. We'll also be talking about people who attain the strongest form of magic by mastering the four pillars. And finally, we'll be talking about the three illnesses that witches get. So buckle up and get ready to learn about magic. What is magic? Magic in Athen is something much deeper than surface level conjuring spells. It is wrapped inside of every aspect of life of each person in Athen. Each rock, stone, tree, everything has massive amounts of natural energy inside of it. Everything from the sun, the moons, the stars, the planets' rings, natural events, the entire world itself is enveloped in natural powers and the creatures that live within it are enveloped within it as well. Now, just because every being on the planet has magic within them and the natural life force energy, it does not mean that each person has the ability to use spells. No, most uses of magic come in a form of survivability. Each person is born in a certain scenario where maybe they're in the northern hemisphere and they are very cold and they the further they go up, the colder that they get. Maybe that's the environment that they live in. Well, the natural energies in the world would allow that person to live in those places. It would wrap around them as described as tethers of or strands of light that surround somebody and create barriers from the natural world. Certain people who are unable to use magic can use this trait to strengthen their bodies to fight with. Some people can strengthen it so much they can block attacks from swords or even flintlock pistols. The world is very strange and the creatures that live inside of it which deserve their own episode and will get their own episode also use the exact same tactics different survivabilities and natural selection causes them to use more and more of this natural tethering in order to survive dragons can use this natural tethering to survive in harsh climates and breathe fire and swim underwater for hours. Humans, or elves, or or ogres, or goblins, or whatever, can also use this as well. If a young human is working in a field in the center of Athen in the hot sunny day every single day for years, eventually the tethers will wrap around their hands and their body, protecting them from the sun and preventing them from getting cuts from the natural causes that they would. It is just a natural level of survivability. Now, with the elves, this survivability comes in the form of keeping them young and strong, giving them better senses of smell and sight and hearing, and it has been used such way as they are the oldest race. Ogres, on the other hand, do not have such useful uses of it. The stronger somebody is in natural energy, the smaller the ogre will be, and more human-like. But the smaller they are, they still pack the exact same amount of strength as a large ogre would. Now, they also can survive in extreme heats, where, say, the people of Nagoria live in Arctic regions and frosty environments. They can walk around without shirts on in the coldest days because the tethers that they have retained their entire lives allow them to survive in the tundras. And across the ices, the under goblins of Tithoria 
have developed in such a way where their posture is small and they are more equipped to dealing with caves and small areas. Their eyes are better attuned to low light and they can crawl around and feel vibrations in the earth. They are very skilled when it comes to mining and other things, and that has allowed them to stay away from modern civilization in Aethon and advance further than Aethon itself. But most goblins do not have a sense of actual magic and cannot use it. Now, the moons and the sun have different abilities as well when it comes to power. This ability gives certain wizards more or less strength depending on what their type of magic is and where it is attuned in their body. Say a witch uses better spells at nighttime than they do at day, which was used to believe at some point as a vocal point for all witches whenever they were discriminated against. Other cases of magic can be seen in the spirits. Now, spirits are not ghosts. Ghosts are their own thing that exist after a person has died. Spirits are natural embodiments of energy combining in one area more than another and eventually creates its own form of ethereal life that exists outside of the normal existence of human or man or elf. They do not know how or why spirits really come into existence, but places that are more attuned to magical environments usually gain more spirits in them. They can range from just balls of light to maybe mystical fairies floating around. Now, there's also gods. Gods are a, a come from an area that is extremely in tuned with magical energy, and the tethers wrap around for hundreds of years before forming something that is known as a god. They are usually stationary and can make their magic move over wide varieties. Gods in this sense are not omnipotent or extremely powerful. They just have bounds to where they exist and they don't have much strength otherwise but they are incredibly volatile in terms of disrespecting or creating contracts with them, and they can be extremely useful or extremely detrimental to an entire civilization, depending on who is representing that civilization to the gods. There's also mythical beasts and magical beasts that live within the world as well. They are strong and powerful animals that have survived longer than most of the others, and exist even longer. Their will to survive gives them more and more strength, which is a repeating theme that you'll see. The stronger something is and the more it wants to survive in the world, the longer it will live. And the stronger the primal instinct will keep it going. This gives these creatures things like exploding horns or fire breath or other things such as that. Now, all magic in the world of Athen comes from a certain point of understanding where there are the six brands the six brands of magic which are just essentially labeled as what they are by mages who are trying to understand what exactly magic is and how to classify it the brands are essentially attuned to each spell cast not particularly each wizard not every wizard is primarily a specific brand or primarily can only use one type they usually can use multiple just each spell is absolutely limited to one of the six brands now the six brands are invoker harborer caster 
Summoner, Convoker, and Inflictor. Each brand does not hold somebody bound, but these brands are very elusive and can cover a very wide variety of different types of magic. Now, the first brand of magic, which is the most common brand, is a caster. Those who can use the caster brand of magic can manipulate the magical world around them in the air and nature. Essentially, these casters use things like staves or wands or swords or some kind of instrument sometimes just their hands but they don't pull from the magic within them they pull from the magic around them and cause those magics to push out against the world the, the most common names for the people who use these are just basic witches mages warlocks you name it they can cast stuff like lightning bolt and fire and all sorts of just generic spell casting now these are the most common but usually do not have the most ability now they can get extremely powerful depending on the level of it but there are so many of them that the higher skill tiers are lower it's harder to become a high powerful or a magus in cast air which a magus is a enlightened form of a wizard or a witch they are the top level of it they are essentially the grand masters of it if you're a caster the chances of you becoming a magus in casting are very slim but again no type of magic is bound to one person so a person who can use casting spells can also use say harper or convoker or inflictor it doesn't really bind them to it but most of the magus are usually inside of one group or one brand of magic as well because when you put yourself into one section and you put your work fully into it you eventually become a master in that section if you have all of the pillars which we will get to now the second brand of magic is called the invoker the invoker is a person who can bind themselves to a spirit or a god or a magical beast like we had talked about prior now they can go about this in many ways they can sign certain books like uh, paladins and priests and clerics are some of the more common ones they sign contracts and blood or uh, solitude or just prayer and certain things like that and the god or spirit allows them to use that certain energy or the magical beast if they're using a magical beast for it they have to be extremely powerful now when they use these abilities they are calling upon the spirit or god no matter where they are in order to use the power needed a paladin using a god's energy from a thousand miles away will still use the same strength but the closer they are the stronger they are and they can blight and smite all sorts of things with that power without actually having to use certain tools and learning certain skills and really understanding all four of the pillars they can bypass some of the steps in order to use magic uh, less common invokers are monks and chosen disciples of specific gods so gods can sometimes choose people who follow them without making them sign contracts in order to use them harborer is the third type of brand of magic they are the third rarest or the third most common they are people who are born with or take in by using certain forms of spell casting they can take in magic into themselves and then exhale that magic through their body uh they are known sometimes as druids or 
elementalists or seers now they have a limited finite amount of magic inside of their body uh, they can usually use extreme amounts of it say somebody takes in water energy and only uses water energy they can probably summon a or conjure up a tidal wave in front of them to send at somebody but that might be the extent of their power and they are limited by it now druids take in natural energy they get strength from being in nature they can manipulate the world around them by pushing out the natural energy inside themselves into the world, allowing it to attune with it and creating extra things. Elementalists are the example of water. They can use fire, wind, water, arcane, ice, lightning, it doesn't really matter. They just take in a specific kind. Most harborer that are elementalists only use one type of power, but usually can branch out to other things, but mostly just use one. Now, seers are especially odd. They take in the energy of luck or foresight or just the ability to see ethereal, and they can see into the world beyond what they normally can, or what normal wizards and witches can. They can see into the future, into different Abilities. They can predict people's outcomes and other things like that and wish luck upon people and cast it out into the world around them. And they can also cast disluck or unluckiness or just charm people. They are very elusive and are very rare. Now, the fourth type of magic brand is known as the Convoker. This is the fourth most common, but we're getting a little more rare on how common they are. The Convoker is someone who does not bind themselves to a source of magic, but can call sources of magic from the area to themselves, such as gods or spirits or beasts in the area around them. They usually have control over the world around them in a way where they can call for help and beckon the spirits around them. So if somebody is in a pinch and they use a convoker spell to call a tree guardian or tree spirit to them, the trees will move and help them. It does not make them a druid, but it does make them a convoker. Now, the most common people who are convokers are known as shamans or witch doctors or wisp masters. Now, shamans can help and heal by calling spirits nearby in order to help those around them. They can also do things like call dangerous spirits. They essentially live their lives uh, experiencing different spirits in the areas that they live in and usually stay in one place because moving to a different place means that they're moving to a place with unknown spirits. Witch doctors are more versatile when it comes to expanding into other areas. They usually can trick spirits into helping them or convince them otherwise or offer them small trinkets and rewards or sacrifices in order to call them forward and to help them. Now they can all call gods but it's very rare and very difficult and very dangerous dangerous to convoke a god to you. Now, wisp masters are people who gather wisps with them, which are small spirits that do very little things, but when you have a multitude of them, you do quite a lot of damage or help quite a lot. Now, the fifth type or fifth brand of magic is known as a summoner, and it's pretty self-explanatory. They can summon magical items, spirits, gods, or magical beasts into the physical plane of existence and use them to help. They really don't have many people who are primarily summoners, only a few who are magus that are at that skill. They are known as conjurers and weapon masters. There is one magus in particular who can summon a thousand blades or arrows or all sorts of different weapons and rain them down. Now, they're 
really their practical application is used a lot more in mundane tasks as in somebody decides that they for or somebody realizes that they forgot their book and they happen to be a wizard so they've touched the book before so they decide that they can summon it it's it's not something deep and powerful but it can be under certain circumstances the next class which is the sixth class or the sixth brand is very rare it is known as the inflictor this is someone who can push magic onto other people such as curses or hexes they can also use glyphs and other types of magic that lay upon something or someone else in order to afflict it or curse it or even help it the the people who use these abilities are much rarer and are known as enchanters or hag ravens or necromancers and necromancers are it's probably its own thing they're extremely rare there's only been a few that have been known to exist uh not many of them become powerful enough because they're usually stopped uh, hag ravens usually get corrupted by inflicting stuff upon themselves in order to get stronger and become deformed and grotesque and and live for thousands of years but are normally killed because they kidnap children and other things in order to use them and their bodies as hosts for inflicted curses and hexes in order to improve their own power enchanters are the much lighter version of it and do things like use glyphs and different abilities to cause traps and skills like that they can enhance weapons and really afflict things that are close to them in a much brighter less dark manner now you you've learned the six brands of magic which are invoker harborer caster summoner convoker and inflictor but once you know these how do you cast a spell now they had to people wizards in the world of Athen had to figure out exactly how they were going to create a simple task in order to allow people to do it. So they seeked out the strongest wizards in the land, which turned out to be some of the smarter people. They considered themselves enlightened. They considered themselves monks or shaman above everyone else. So they asked and eventually came up with four rules or the four pillars of magic. Now, the first pillar is known as ability. It is known by a symbol of a hand open-palmed in a circle. The first pillar is ability. The second pillar is understanding. It is known as a brain with a eye in the center of it in a circle. The third pillar is respect. It is known as a closed fist in front of a heart surrounded by a circle the fourth pillar is control it is known as a full human body meditating in a circle as well now these four pillars are the fundamental grasps at being able to cast spells and use magic entirely the first pillar ability is a pillar that defines if a person is able to and has the capability to cast a spell. Not having the ability can hurt the caster by not letting them cast ever again or for a very, very long time. Sometimes a day, sometimes 10 years. Now, ability is defined by someone's birth if they are born with the ability to use magic or if they are born with the ability to attain more energy reserves and more ability to manipulate the world around them. This can be expanded by more use like a muscle the ability pillar is a very sturdy one and very common one among them it is very hard for somebody who 
lacks ability to become a powerful caster but it is not unknown but mostly it goes through different types of curses or somebody who primarily uses invoking skills so they don't actually have to use ability now the second pillar is understanding this determines if the user is knowledgeable on the spell how to cast the spell and the grasp on the inner workings of the magic itself so if you are trying to strengthen your understanding you simply learn about it if you're trying to say cast fireball and you want to be the best fireball caster that's ever been your best chance at it would be to improve your understanding of how fire works what is the inner working what is the temperature what is the speed at which it can be thrown what is the maximum explosion it can be done because the more you expand your knowledge on a spell the stronger the spell will be because you'll be able to manipulate it in specific tiny ways that make it stronger like what temperature does my fireball need to be to light this tree on fire what temperature does it need to be to create static heat you never know how strong a spell can be because you can never know how far you can push a spell in the knowledge that you understand it eventually if you understand water spells you can eventually create ice out of them because you'll understand that temperature is a factor in understanding of a spell so mostly the world around you and the nature of everything is just needed to be understood in order to get a stronger pillar in understanding not having an understanding however and casting spell can cause the user to hurt people around him or the improper uses can cause things like self-harm like somebody casts fireball but doesn't quite understand how hot it needs to be or how far away from their hand it actually needs to create and they burn their own hand you you never truly know how strong something can be if you don't understand it the third pillar is respect this pillar demands that the user is humbled by magic this demands that they are humbled by the gods or spirits that they use because if you do not respect the magic that you are casting it can absolutely hurt them or kill them or kill somebody else or just get incredibly damaging to the world around them say let's use the fireball metaphor again let's say that they use the fireball but they have no respect for fire well the fire could get completely out of control and not and get to a point to where they themselves could not control the fire and it can burn people around them or entire cities to the ground or forests to the ground it is very tempting to use things without having respect and attitude and cockiness can lead to some of the more deadly wizards especially destruction wizards but they are very chaotic in terms of being able to control their own thing not respecting it can cause serious damage to their own well-being as well in terms of the way that their self is represented in magical standing not respecting their magic and offending a god can cause them to lose their power permanently or kill them not understanding spirits can cause them to get cursed by those spirits or afflicted respect is a very important pillar now the fourth pillar and potentially the most important pillar is control it does not the this does not con require control over the spell itself but more entails control over one's mind and self having control and balance between someone's mental states and their sense of self can really produce the best results for some reason in the world of Athen and the world that magic works the more in tuned someone is and having one goal the stronger the casting can be now if a person is in truly enlightened in the way that they think and the way that they act the spells that they cast can be incredible 
incredibly devastating and extremely controlled. If they are all confident in both self and mind, and they have a good respect, understanding, and ability, then they can create something so confidently stronger than those who are lacking in any of those things. Now, not having control can cause spells to backfire against you. Being conflicted about your life can cause serious damages to magic. There are so many different uses for control, and really that is why the Magus, who are the strongest of the wizards and witches and all of the different classes of people, the Magus are known as the witch philosophers, or the philosopher witches. They know how to attain their ultimate enlightened power. Now, all four pillars are incredibly useful and need to work in harmony in order for it to work properly. If you don't use the four pillars properly, you can cause serious damage to yourself. Each pillar has its own drawback for not working on. It takes a lot of witches, years to be able to understand all four pillars and use them correctly. Sometimes they never attain the perfect use of those magics. Now, the strongest have complete control over all four pillars, and they claim that it is the basis for having a strong structure above them. The uses of all four pillars can be undermined by things like invokers. Maybe invokers don't need to have as much ability and control if their, their pillars of understanding and respect are so strong for the god that they are invoking that the god will handle the ability and handle the control. And if they maybe get lacking in the third pillar, which is respect, they could be seriously harmed by their god because they won't be able to control the power that comes after it. This is the same for essentially all different spells. Inflictors use more control and ability than understanding and respect. They have the ability to use it and they have the control to use it and usually the control doesn't just necessarily mean enlightenment, it also can mean just knowing that you are evil and your plan is to do evil and they can cast spells basis off of that. Even though their respect is low, they're casting the respect disadvantages onto the person that is taking the infliction and their lack of understanding can be expanded by the results that is produced after inflicting something or someone with the spell that they wanted to cast or the curse or the hex. This goes a long way with everything. Casters usually have to have a basis of all four and harborers do as well. Summoners don't really need to have the third pillar of respect unless they're summoning something like an animal to or a god to their plane but they do need to have a lot of ability and understanding and control. Now, convokers need to have an extreme respect, an extreme understanding, an extreme amount of control, not so much ability. Now, these are just specific spells as well that don't require all four pillars quite as much, but all four pillars are required to produce the best outcomes no matter what at the end of the day. These pillars are highlighted by their symbols, which the first pillar 
pillar ability is highlighted by a fist in a circle. The second pillar understanding is by an eye inside of a brain in a circle. The third pillar is respect and it is highlighted by a fist in front of a heart. And the fourth pillar is control and it is highlighted by a person meditating in a circle. Now, what happens when somebody masters all four of these pillars? They become known as the Magus or the Philosopher Witches. They spend their lives focusing on one or two different strings of philosophy of the time and they attain what they believe is enlightenment inside of those fields and that gives them extreme power. They spend their life knowing how the spells work and studying it. They spend their lives trying to respect the thing that they're devoting themselves to and the devotion itself shows the humble and respect pillar the strength that it deserves. They possess the ability and they expand upon the ability the longer that they try to attain this and then they work on their their sense of self and their mind creating the perfect control and usually they have an equilibrium between all four pillars and create amazing results there are only 22 magus in Athen currently they are very odd people who keep to themselves and only meet under extreme circumstances and are very unknown by most of the people most people don't know the magus's names most people don't even know where they are or what they look like most not even the royal family knows who they are or what they look like now there are people born as magus as well people born with almost enlightened souls they are born with the four pillars almost perfectly mastered they are born with the ability to use incredible powers they're born with the understanding and just the ability to comprehend magic in ways that other people aren't and they are born with respect for those magics and the magic even respect respects them and they are born with dire control and their ambition is what drives the control through the roof. There are only a few examples of born Magus and they are known as the Witch King and the First High King. There are a few others as well. One of them is 10,000 years old or says that he is 10,000 years old and lives in the middle of the God's Mountains. No one knows his name because he laughs when somebody asks him because he does not remember but he knows that at one point point he attained enlightenment and spoke that he should never die because life is eternal and that was but became true for him he took on the form as many animals did and living longer except he has lived for 10,000 years he said that he has seen the fall and rise of society but he won't speak about what that was or what's going on no one has really ever spoken more than a few words to him because he does not enjoy speaking to anybody nobody knows what his power is or where he really is even is just randomly in the god's mountains he'll appear and have a conversation with you most of the magus seek him out before they attain the status and speak with him and learn life lessons from him but he is not particularly needed for this goal now that you've learned about the magus and their mastery of the four pillars most magus are involved inside of one or two different types of magic most magus will stay inside of their one brand of magic their entire lives like the magus for ice lives in an island north of nagoria and dragon island and is a harborer of magic she controls nothing but ice and is incredibly powerful with it but she does 
does not mess with anybody else and is said to attain pure enlightenment. She has her own coven up there, but nobody really ever gets to see it. Now, the Magus are very powerful people, but they do not meddle in the affairs of modern day politics. They have been more and more conflicted with the world around them as they've gotten older and as the world has progressed as Magus have died and new philosophies have come forward and people pushed into those, there are new ideas that are making people strong. Now, this is on a very cusp of the industrial revolution inside of Athen. They have recently created printing presses and certain factories have started being made using blight iron and hollow gems. They have started the pathway to becoming something more industrial rather than feudal. Now, blight iron and hollow gems are something extremely different than you would expect. Magic, as we've said before, is very deep in the world. And one of the insane things about it is that you can't really control the way that magic works. So deep inside of the earth, there are things known as hollow gems and things known as blight iron. This, these are rocks that have been in specific areas for so long that the world around them has encapsulated these stones or these materials or these gemstones and infused them with magical properties. Blight iron is iron or a metallic force that has been blighted with a certain element or a certain power inside of it or a magic. They are mostly common as fire blight, cold blight, air blight, holy blight, dark blight, thunder blight, mana blight, and aberrant blight. Aberrant blight is a strange type of metallic metal that is being formed into different stronger weapons that have very specific. Some are known as lava blight or blood blight or different odd magics that can be used in very specific strange ways. Now, Fire Blight and Thunder Blight have been beginning to be used in very different things. The Goblin City of Tethoria have created light bulbs out of Thunder Blight, or essentially light bulbs. They're just glowing orbs of coils using Thunder Blight as battery packs, and they have lit up their area. They don't share technology very well. They've also created minecarts and other things. They also have creation over steam, is something that recently came into existence that they have figured out how to use with their fire blight. They use these different elements and items in order to progress their civilization much faster. Tethoria is a very odd country that deserves its own lesson, but as far as you need to know, the Undergoblin City does not dwell in royalty. They have a republic of sorts that is ruled by a class of people that are undisposed to the rest of the world's problems, only living and understanding what is in the mountain. They have a large navy and they are extremely powerful but have never been involved in any event in the world's history but they are expanding that now which also deserves its own episode and will receive its own episode at some point now the second type of magical 
object inside of the earth is known as the hollow gems. Now these gems are pretty self-explanatory. Aberrant gems are the same as aberrant blight. They are just rare oddities of magic. Uh, mostly used gems are glow gems. They use uh, small strikes against them and they create a humming glow that the rest of the world usually buys from them for a source of light. Now most of these gems are rare but they are still shipped constantly out of Tethoria. Now these abilities that they have are not really limited by much. They haven't really been used for much discovery. Their potential is very high and they really just don't know what the capability of something that can produce something as potent as electricity or something as potent as fire can actually be. Now moving on away from all of that we're going to talk about the three illnesses that witches and wizards can be inflicted with. The first of all, the difference between a witch and a wizard is just the type of magic. It is not gender specific to anything. A witch uses a specific energy color based magic while a wizard uses something that is essentially just seen as purple-ish magic. They use just pure mana, but they are both very common. So the three illnesses that afflict them are known as Fiend Hex, the Witch King's Plague, and the Wild Smite. The Fiend Hex is a magical curse that appears extremely rarely and it doesn't really seem to be spreadable to other people. Uh, the people who afflict with the fiend hex will start to cast spells very aggressively their magic will get a lot stronger suddenly and slowly they go insane and lose sight on reality becoming something known as a fiend they kill anyone they feel the need to need to and start acting like a wild animal who hunts other witches and wizards they consume their magic and get stronger by doing so most fiends are one in ten thousand witches will get it so in the modern day they they see one every 10 years or so. The fiends are very rare and very powerful, and it is even believed that the Witch King became a fiend at one point and then overcame that power eternally and came back to reality after that, which is insane. Now, the second plague is known as the Witch King's Plague. This one is transmutable. Somebody who has the Witch King's Plague, which we do not know how it is contracted, but random cases do pop up, they use magic in an area where other wizards are. The other wizards can get afflicted with the plague, and this plague forces wizards to randomly cast spells without even trying. It causes witches to randomly afflict or use different things that they have in their arsenal, and it essentially gives them, from the first time a spell randomly goes off it gives them 33 days and they have to go to Denrook the capital of the witch sanctuary or the old home of the witch king and they have to bathe in the inner sanctuary and if they do not they will lose their power forever now the pilgrimage can be extremely difficult especially if somebody in the cusp of direwood gets afflicted with the witch plague because it takes longer than 33 days to get there it's very sad that people have to be suffering with something like this it is known as the witch king's plague because when he took Athen a thousand years ago the plague started in his armies it may have just been the first time that it was ever recorded but he hid the existence of it for a long time until the wars were over and 
he created the bathing pools in the inner sanctuary of Denruk. These were made of what he said were the most holy magics that he's ever conjured, and anyone who bathes in it will be cured of all afflictions. Now, it doesn't just bathe people who have the Witch King's Plague, it also bathes anybody who has any type of sickness, but the pools are very hard to get to and usually take people days to convince the keepers to allow them in unless they clearly have the Witch King's Plague, which another symptom is after the spells start, your eyes will turn yellow and you'll slowly begin to lose your magic ability entirely. Now, the third curse is known as Wild Smite. Wild Smite is very interesting and is an inherited disease. It is something that is deep inside of the soul or inside of the roots of someone's magic. It is usually comes in the form of a beast, monster, or animal. The people, as a good example of Dragon Island, are cursed with the Wild Smite and it is inherited through them. They are known for being able to spit out a cosmic glow that allows their body to irradiate and turn into a cosmic form of their animal that is inside of their soul. Now, some people can turn into bears or dragons or wolves or any of these sorts of things, but that kind one is just of Dragon Island. There are also known cases of it inside of the Holy Forest. People call it lycany or turning into a werewolf. Even the wild smite will affect somebody and they can spread it to other people by attacking them. They turn into ravenous animals and not many people can control it. People of Dragon Island are usually the only ones and if you get afflicted with Wild Smite or you find out that you have it, usually you'll take a pilgrimage to Dragon Island so they can teach you to control the beast within. It is a very deep magic that can get a lot of loved ones killed if you're not careful. Now that is essentially the lesson on magic. Uh, you have learned about the six types of magic uh, known as the caster, the invoker, the harborer, the convoker, the summoner, and the inflictor. You've also learned about the, the four pillars, the first pillar of ability, the second pillar of understanding, the third pillar of respect, and the fourth pillar of control. You've learned about the magus, and you've learned about just generally what magic is and what it does to the world, like creating hollow gems and blight iron. Now, this lesson is simply to explain the comings and goings. It, there are a lot deeper of dives we could go into probably each different brand of magic could probably have its own hour-long episode. Casters and invokers and harborers, they have so many examples of all the different types of spells and primary wizards who use these different types of magic. Even the four pillars themselves could probably have an episode on each pillar as there are so many different philosophers that spend their time working on them, especially the fourth pillar control. There are so many genius people who spend their time thinking about what the level of consciousness that you have to attain in order to use magic entirely and it, it is probably can use its own five hours or five episodes on the fourth pillar of control because there's so many different people inside of the world of Athen who have knowledge on how to do different things now the magus could probably also use their own episode as well because there are so many of them and their power is very interesting now, the, the first High King and the Witch King will probably get their own episode at some point as well. The Illnesses probably get their own episode as well. Uh, and so can the Blight, 
and hollow gems. Now, this this world of Athen is a very magical place and is surrounded and enveloped in magical energies. And there are not a lot of witches and wizards and so on and so forth. I know that we've talked about it like a lot of people have it, but one out of every 100 people is a wizard. So, and in recent years, the numbers seem to be going up again to one in a hundred, but about 50 years prior to where the beginning of the tale of the Red Witch starts, it's one in every 5,000 people are witches or wizards. So the the lesson itself is just on magic, and this is the first episode of the Codex of Athen. Uh, again, I'm your host, Elijah Black, and I'll see you next time.